to episode 26 of Western Reaches, a.k.a. the post-celebration episode. Hey, Seth. Woo! Hi. Hey, we saw each other in person last week. We did. It was yes. so cool. <laughs> it was <laughs> amazing. And we monopolized a, a TV at the video game bar and played Halo for quite a while. And <laughs> it, was, uh, <laughs> it was exactly what I wanted it to be. It was honestly one of my favorite parts of Celebration. Like, it was one of the highlights because it was just so much fun. It was. I just wanted to stay there for, like, several hours. Me too. I wish I wish that night could have gone on for much longer. But everyone else was leaving and I was like, oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the group had kind of been burnt out, which makes sense because that was a long convention. It was good, but it was long. Oh, yeah. I'm still not used to these four-day convention things. They are intense. So we'll cover uh, Celebration in full toward the end of the episode, but I think we're going to start out with uh, our introduction, I guess, which I didn't do yet, did I? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think so. So if you have uh, by chance not heard this podcast before, this is uh, our bi-weekly podcast about all the games and books that we're into, um, a little bit of writing craft stuff. We've actually not recorded for almost a month, right? Because you've been traveling, I've been traveling, and then Celebration happened. Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff happening over this past month. For sure. So we'll try to keep this within within the hour time. But part of what <laughs> all that travel means is that I haven't actually been reading much. So it, it balanced out. <laughs> but we'll have a yeah, lot Yeah, kind of, of same. Yeah, we'll have a lot of Star Wars to talk about. Oh yeah, for sure. So on the video game front, I doubled down and uh, beat Horizon Zero Dawn in about a week. Like that, there was a week where I was doing pretty much nothing except playing that in the evenings, which was <laughs> nice. <laughs> and um, we talked about that a little bit in the last episode, but generally, I really enjoyed it. I found like all the character arcs felt very complete. Um, by the end, I was just very fond of a lot of the, the people in that game. Um, I continued to find the combat really satisfying. But the final, like the final boss, which you have not gotten to yet, right? You have not finished this no, game? No, I'm still, yeah, I'm still plodding through it. Yeah, so like I'm not gonna do uh, story spoilers or anything, but my like one criticism is that the game kind of set up a really huge conflict at the end and while the conflict like it didn't it wasn't that the stakes were low the conflict in the story sense was was big and high stakes and it felt important it was the actual combat itself like the thing you have to fight at the end was not as sort of world shaking as i thought it would be and oh. the way they do the end game, once you've finished, you get put back before you've completed the final mission. So oh. it basically rewinds and you are not available to interact or it's not you're not able to interact with the world as if you have finished the story. You can only go back to the, the you know, just before the final battle bit. So, and I kind of, I wanted just for, like, the completion's sake and immersion's sake to be able to, like, live in that world post the final battle. And I don't think it necessarily would have been that difficult. 
Um, but you weren't really able to do that. So that was a little disappointing. But generally, I thought it was fantastic. I think that there are very clear places where you could put a sequel, and I think they are, they're working on DLC. I wouldn't doubt I would see a sequel. Um, I guess what I would like out of that is I would like to see bigger cities. The one Meridian was like the biggest city, and it was impressive, and it was, it felt lived in, it felt active, but I kind of wanted a couple more set piece areas like that, which I mean, arguably it's a post post-apocalyptic world. There wouldn't be these huge cities, but Sunfall, which is the other like main city, felt kind of small compared to Meridian. So I guess uh, those are my like wishes for the future of this franchise, but I definitely think it's got legs under it to become a franchise, and I'm really excited about that. I find that really interesting with the in-game thing, because I kind of just assumed it would you'd kill the final boss and then go on and do stuff, because that's kind of what happens in open world games like the whole you get kicked back to before the final boss thing is very like a linear game kind of thing um and i'm curious how i'm gonna feel about it when i get there does the story do like anything surprising or is it just kind of what you'd expect it puts twists on what you'd expect my basically the theories that I had about what I thought was going to happen, like, here's what I think the answers are, like, here's who I think Eloy is, I was right, but then the game pushed it one step further. Like, you're right, but here's why, and here's this other thing that happened because of that. Okay, that's good to hear, because so far the story has been very predictable, and I mean, I'm loving the game. Like, I kept, I was at a conference over the weekend, and I kept, like, picking on the story and everyone's like oh do you hate horizon i'm like no i love the game i just the story hasn't impressed me that much yet so i'm excited to actually get further into it because i can't tell how far throughout i actually am yet so which is making it a bit harder to judge the story as well do you feel like it's kind of that stock apocalypse story is that your concern or do you have other no. like, more specific narrative concerns kind of more specific narrative concerns part of it is that the uh, narrative is very linear for an open world game and um it doesn't do anything interesting with the narrative at all like i mean like within the game like i don't mean the story itself just the way the narrative is presented isn't super interesting or innovative for like such an exciting game um but also the story beats even if the story doesn't feel predictable the story beats kind of do if that makes sense huh i think that's one thing we're both getting at is that like, the story beats and the story are kind of detached from each other. Because, I like, that's kind yeah. of what I felt like, too, when I was talking about the ending. Like, I found the story satisfying, but the way it played out in the rhythm of the game as a whole didn't quite feel right. Yeah, that's kind of it. Like, I feel like if I was watching the story as a movie, I would really like it. But because it's a game, it feels slightly different. Huh. I, it's certainly, I didn't really have that issue until I got to the end. But I yeah. liked that sort of, you could almost switch between linear or open world depending on how you wanted to play. And I sort of like Yeah. That. I think this game definitely handled that way better than Dragon Age Inquisition did. Because I don't feel like I've lost the story. I feel like I'm still part of it even when I'm off doing side quests and stuff. Huh. <laughs> now, do you think, like from a design perspective, do you think that's tied into the fact that they do, the end game content is not actually end game content? Or... Like, can you think of a, like, development reason why that would be besides, oh, they didn't want to record any more dialogue for the NPCs or something? 
The only reason I can really see that being a thing in an open world game like that is that something happens in the ending that would affect the open world that would have to change a lot, or they're planning more story stuff that would have to come before the ending, technically, um, so that they don't want you to... Like, it wouldn't work if it's afterwards, possibly, if they are doing DLC and stuff. Um, those are the only two things I can really think of. It might have just been because they were out of budget and time at the end and didn't want to do more, or they have an actual reason. It's hard to tell because I haven't finished it yet, um, and I also don't know what their plans are. But it is a strange choice to me, just from the outside. Mm, I like that point about how it might be that the DLC are set before the ending, because that allows for, like, characters that changed toward the end or something it allows the dlc to involve them in a way it might not otherwise yeah kind of like um you know like the citadel dlc from mass effect 3 yeah. like needs to be played <laughs> before the ending <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking about but then i was trying to map map the like silliness of citadel onto horizon and was just like how would it even work like somebody steals <laughs> a strider like <laughs> oh my god yeah. imagine like somebody has stole a really big a really big robot and you've got to like go through this whole thing with it oh my god i don't know but <laughs> i there's probably a reason a good reason for them doing it it just it's interesting yeah i have i do feel like i'm gonna continue to to pick away at this game like in between other things um i definitely think that you know any dlc whatever i would i would pick up and i'm really curious to see what you do think about the end yeah, I really I really want to get to the ending already because I feel really unfair judging the game and its story before I've actually finished it. Um, and I just really want to know what happens. And I'm also terrified to fight other robots because I've I just got into the area. Well, not just, but I got into an area where there's suddenly a whole lot of new ones and they're all terrifying and huge. And I'm like, I don't know how to kill any of these things. I'm just going to keep running. So what um, what part of the main quest are you on? Um, I got into Meridian and did some stuff there, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to go level up some more, so I ran off into the wilds, basically. Okay, so you haven't done, um, uh, what was it, the Grave Horde yet? That's, like, where you learn some more plot stuff. Oh, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's not pretty. <laughs> no, I I, I'm going to play, I'm... sorry. No, it's all right, you broke up a little bit, go on. Um, I'm going to play some more when I get back from Sydney next week. Like, I'll probably de devote as much free time as I have to it, because I really want to play more. I've been craving playing this game the entire time I've been gone. <laughs> so that's some sort of success. Yeah. I was thinking that I want more people to play it, because, like, I want more people to talk about it with. And I was like, oh, well, if it doesn't, if it, like, um if it does like destiny 2 is doing it goes to pc or like the sequel comes out on xbox or something like then there'll be more people to talk about it but no sony like owns guerrilla games right so yeah this is not going to other consoles anytime soon <laughs> which yeah it's definitely gonna be an exclusive for a while i think yeah, it's yeah. always sad with that stuff, because the more consoles it's on obviously the more people that play it and it's like i understand exclusives but they still suck yeah, and I mean, it, it got me to buy the PS4, which I don't really regret, except, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was about to say something needlessly harsh, but I don't entirely mean it. I was about to say I don't regret it, except that I've been playing Andromeda on it, <laughs> but <laughs> so I'm about 12 hours into Andromeda. I'm on Havarl, which is a beautiful planet. It has that going for it. It's very pretty, and it's... A little bit different from things 
uh, things I've seen before. Oh, did you say something? No, no, sorry. Okay. Um, so it, like, it has some cool, like, giant glowing fungi, which aren't necessarily, like, a new concept in science fiction, but there's a lot of detail. There's, like, little spores and little insects, and the colors are really nice. So, like, Kvarl is pretty. But generally, I have found Andromeda to be thoroughly whelming. It's just, like, a really generic copy of the Mass Effect trilogy, almost. And I, I really want to like it, especially because, like, people like like our friend Mike Templeton on uh, Twitter is, like, really into it. And I want to be able to be into it. But every time I start to get attached to the characters, like, I like Liam. I just met Jal. He's cool. Um, I like Ryder. But every time I start to think about them as people, somebody, like, jolts in the middle of a scene or dialogue just sounds like it was sort of a first draft or, you know, some lighting just goes haywire. It's it's a game that just keeps reminding me that it's a game and it's making immersion very difficult. That's really unfortunate to hear because I'm still quite early into the game. I think I just got Sam in my head. Um, but... It's really laggy on my computer because my computer's like five years old. I'm genuinely surprised it actually runs on it at all. Um, but it's been hard to play it as much as I want to. And yeah, I'm kind of worried about that because um, when I was on that first planet you're on, the lighting was going haywire sometimes. And I was like, oh no, this is not going to be good for my head. Oh, uh, so you've got computer issues as well as the game itself is is having trouble and i yeah so i did download the the patch so i have the um sort of they've cleaned up some of the animation but like it's it really feels oddly unfinished like characters will um like transitions from cutscenes to gameplay are really abrupt or and these are like things that I'm sure, like, designers think about, but I would never really have thought about that the way to, like, smooth out the transition from a cutscene to um, gameplay or, like, when Ryder's talking to someone, you can still kind of move the camera around a little bit. It doesn't quite have that cinematic quality or some of the animations repeat a lot. Like, when you when you talk to people on the the Tempest, they're usually facing away from you and they turn around and even if the dialogue is different, the turn is exactly the same every time. And mm. because Mass Effect 2 was, like, so careful to polish everything, and 3 as well, it just it feels like it's from an earlier generation. Some of the dialogue has been fun. Like, I like the characters, um, but, like, there's a scene, uh, or even, the, even Sam as a decent example. I... I don't feel much of a connection to Sam, and there's a, a discussion later on in uh, one of the missions you pick up on the Nexus is about AI rights, and somebody's protesting they don't want AI on the on the station. And I love like AI rights stories. Like I love to get to know like you know synthetic characters and to like discuss well what exactly would their rights be in a, a society with any given sort of. Uh, government structure and I just can't latch on to this because I don't really care about Sam and the game is asking me to 
And there was another moment that was supposed to be this sort of big, like, thing for the Ryder family, and I, I just don't think the dialogue did it. And, like, I'm gonna keep playing it, I'm gonna keep giving it a chance, I'm sure there will be things that I enjoy, but I don't know. I don't know about this. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, this game probably got screwed over by budget and time constraints and um, being a much bigger game than the studios used to. I think because they ended up getting Edmonton and I think to work on it as well near the end. I think the problem was that it was just, it's it's a very ambitious game and the other Mass Effect games have been a lot smaller than this. And I think that's why Mass Effect 2 was so polished because it was quite a small game in comparison. Like there were only a certain amount of worlds and you don't go around on them like in a vehicle except for in the DLC. Um, so I think it was, I wish they hadn't wanted to make it open world because I feel like Mass Effect works fine as a linear game. Um without that much exploration but on the other hand exploration is such a big theme of this game that i can see why they did it as well and it it just kind of sucks because i can see it like i haven't finished the game and i haven't played much of it but i can see it from like what other people are saying what i've seen of the game that it seems like it yeah could have been more polished but didn't have the time or the budget for it i wonder if part of the headache for me is that i am trying to play it like a linear game like i'm i'm on Haral right now and you have to do, you know, there's a, a bunch of side missions and you needed to do like a, a minor, you know, a short mission in order to unlock your next main one. And, oh, what? Sorry, I didn't say anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm getting a little bit of crackle, but it's, it's all right. Um, oh, sorry. I had trouble kind of determining which mission was going to be important and other other critics have said this and I, I wish I could cite the actual review that said it but I don't remember about how it doesn't do very well like um, indicating the weight of the task you're doing you never really know whether it's going to be something that's going to push the plot forward or not and there are like it separates out priority missions or side missions but the two kind of blur together. And I don't know if that's because I am kind of trying to play it like a linear game and say, okay, well, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff on this planet and then I'm going to move on to the next planet. Whereas meanwhile, I'm getting missions for planets all over the place. Or if that's because the the open world really is like too big for the the structure to support. I don't I don't know. But I guess I, I found myself very quickly, like, I know that feeling of, like, from Mass Effect 3, especially, because that was a little bigger, I think, um, that feeling of just sort of pleasantly organizing missions. Like, okay, I know I can do this here and this here and this here. And this one, I, I don't know what it is about it. It's It feels like a chore more than it feels like a strategy. I feel like I don't always know what effect my decisions are going to have, even as a player, not to mention as a character. Yeah, I mean, that was one of my biggest issues with Dragon Age Inquisition was the missions kind of felt the same. Like, there was, I didn't, I didn't know the way to any of them. Like, obviously you knew your main mission, but like, there was still like other side missions that were still important and stuff like that. And I could never tell which ones were which. Um, and yeah, the world was very big for such a, it wasn't a small story, but it's still very linear. Like you're in one place and you're in the other, but the world still goes on without that. And it's quite detached from the side missions. And I think that does just come from, like I said before, just trying to be a linear game in an open world, which doesn't really work that well. And I 
kind of wish these games weren't trying to do it so much because open world is such a big thing like everyone loves it so much they love the exploration and all the side missions and all those collectibles and everything but it depends on the story you're trying to tell and if you are telling a purely linear story then all this extra stuff just kind of distracts from that and it can get confusing or headachey or whatever if it's not done well and i mean horizon does it quite well but i think that works because it's only one big map um whereas like mass effect is across a whole bunch of different planets and inquisition is across a whole bunch of different countries and it's like it gets kind of mixed up. Yeah, and if the travel was fun, or if the travel was even a little bit easier, or if the the tasks were more fun, I, I find myself kind of muddling through the combat. Um, I will admit I had it on the casual mode for a while because I just wanted to progress through the story, but then I moved it back to, the, to normal, and the combat <laughs> is... Uh, like I still don't feel like I've got the hang of it. I don't feel like there's a lot of weight to it. And but like if that was fun, the the list wouldn't be as tedious. But instead, it's I'm deciding less based on oh what would be fun and more based on oh what would get me through this quickly. And the thing is that the story, the writing, well, I'll say the story it does a lot of things that I love. It added so many endearing little bits. Like there's a whole quest just to get a movie to watch on your ship. Like the fact that the characters move around the ship all the time is just really fun. It makes the ship itself feel really lived in and really active. And that's exactly what I always wanted from the Normandy. So that I really like. It's the stuff that's, you know, in between that's frustrating. Yeah. I hope, um, I hope they learn a lot from this game and so the next one's better because, I mean, that kind of happened with Inquisition is that they learned a whole lot from that game and the DLC ended up being really good for that game. So I'm kind of hoping it happens with this as well, that they learn, that they've learned a lot of lessons from it, which I think they probably have because I can't imagine making this game <laughs> and not learning lessons from it. Yeah, and in a way I feel bad. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, disrespect any of the work that went into this. I, I bet, like, the time constraints were insane. But I certainly would, I, I would like if it, it kind of uh, eventually brought itself to a place, a DLC or something where we can say, okay, that was, that was worth it. And here's like Ryder's real story almost. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yep. And I agree. Yep. And the novels. I'm still looking forward to the novels. So oh, yeah. Catherine I'm so looking forward to those. N.K. Jemison will save us, but I've been saying that all year. So <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, have been doing some other game-related things. If you, don't wanna, if you don't have anything else about Andromeda, do you want to talk about your travels? Yeah, sure. So I, um, after going to Canada and America for a while, um, I went down to Wellington, which is in New Zealand, to go to play-by-play, -play, which... I may have talked about last year, um, which is a games festival, uh, international games festival. And so it's like this little, it's a tiny little conference where they do like an exhibition of games um, in this art gallery and kids and stuff can come in and play them. And it's really cool. And they do a bunch of workshops and it's really fun. Um, and I missed all of that because I was in America and I came back for the actual conference itself where I did a talk about making choices in games and narrative structures and how they can suit the themes of the game because that is something I feel very strongly about and it was really fun I ad-libbed the entire talk as I would um <laughs> that's, that's I got impressive. to a slide 
I got to a slide where I'd written vehicle and I looked at it. I was like, did I spell vehicle right? I don't actually know. And everyone's audience is like, ah. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep going then. Um, and I think I did, but I'm still not sure. But it was it was really fun. Um, I think I got a few laughs out of it. And there were actually a surprising number of talks about narrative that day, which was really cool because I'm not really used to seeing a bunch of talks about narrative at places. And they were all like from different points of view. Like somebody talked about emergent narrative, which is like the – stuff where where you play the game the game kind of tells a story through that um an environmental narrative where the game tells a story through the environment um and then there was like other stuff about like mega games which are basically like giant in-person um games like kind of like larping but not quite it's kind of like a cross between larping and board games which sounds really cool and i really want to do one now um that's interesting that makes me think of the uh the star wars land plans yeah i someone not quite but someone actually did talk about that and how the narrative was going to work in that because they worked at they work at ilmx lab or whatever it is and i think they're doing some stuff with it i don't know they're under ndas but they were talking about that a little bit and i was like oh tell me more please oh cool yeah but it was so much fun and i'm glad i actually got up and did a talk even though it was a it was a very short talk but it was fun and apparently i sounded smart which is what matters yeah that's awesome (laughs) You did a whole uh, a whole lecture. So I don't know if this is quite the right question to ask, but I guess like what research did you do? Or if someone wants to kind of learn that information that you talked about, is there a place that they could like find a link to that? Um, one of my main references was the game narrative toolbox, the narrative designer's toolbox. I don't know, something like that. I've lost it in Canada, so I don't remember what it's called, but it's a really good book about narrative design and it had a whole chapter or a little mini chapter about like narrative structures. So it talked about linear games or open world games or branching games. And I kind of took from that and made my own little subcategories as well. Um, Honestly, like a lot of it is just playing narrative games or games that you love and then looking at why you love them and contrasting them against other games. Um, Also, I went a lot from Alex Freed's game blog because he writes a lot of really good stuff about choice and player agency. Like, he is well in there. So, yeah, Alex Freed, the game narrative toolbox, and um, I feel like there are other things as well, but those are my main two sources of inspiration for this. Cool, cool. You still there? Yeah, I'm still there. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, good. That's um I was actually kind of wondering if you were going to bring up his blog because I read some of of his stuff based on uh Mass Effect style narrative and it's it's really interesting. Ooh, I haven't read that stuff yet. It might I have should... been I think it's probably the same sort of thing that you did the research on. He did at least one article about romances in games. Oh yeah, I love that article. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very interested in that kind of stuff as well. Um, I have a friend here, Lucy, who does a lot of research into narrative, or not narrative, romance and sex and games. And so I'm always just like, tell me about your research, because this is really interesting to me. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I I mean, I remember that survey that Bioware put out uh, after Mass Effect 3. It was was quite a while ago, I believe. And it was sort of about what players' preferences are and, uh, you know, who romance with character. And they released the, the results. And I was fascinated by that, by the idea of like, okay, what makes uh, what makes a story appealing to like any given type of player, and what can you kind of tell about the player from the choices they make and stuff like that. I don't really have like 
a conclusion about it as much as you do probably but i just thought it was fascinating (laughs) because it's such a sort of microcosm of emotion yeah actually one of the most interesting things i found for my research which um unrelated to romance but related to choices in games is that um a lot of people don't finish the games like the reason that endings and games like are often less intense in the starts or like can be a bit lackluster compared to that is because for one thing they run out budget and for another thing a lot of people just don't get that far in the game so the beginning is good to bring them in but the ending especially in games like skyrim or red dead redemption like i think in red dead redemption only like three percent of people actually got the end game of it or something like that it was a really small percentage because it's such a big game and people just don't finish the story and i feel like skyrim's probably gonna have some crazy percentage like that because who actually finishes skyrim nobody yeah wow and i mean i guess that goes to sort of what do you play it for like you don't necessarily play skyrim to go from point a to point b yeah i think that was that when it was they were talking about open world narratives which are the ones where the story isn't really linear and it kind of it's modulated um sort of like grand theft auto and yeah they're saying that like in those games you don't place a lot of importance on the climax of the game because people probably won't get to it but also you've got to balance that with not wanting to tell a bad ending so it's I think part of the reason that was brought up, at least in the talks, was somebody was talking about Life is Strange. One of the talks was mentioned Life is Strange and how I completely disagree with everything they said, but they were saying that the structure of the story disagrees with one of the endings, so that you like it has a good ending and a bad ending, and I totally disagree with that completely. Um, but they pointed out that one ending, which is the bad ending, uh, has a shorter cutscene, and so it's it's um, rewarding you less than the other ending might. And then somebody pointed out that they actually just didn't have budget for that ending. <laughs> like, that's the reason it's so short, is that the <laughs> game company didn't have the budget to make a longer ending, um, and they weren't trying to make either ending right. And I was like, that... Because by that point, yeah, you it is the less important part, is getting those endings. Like, you've got to get them, but... You know, you just reach that point and you don't have the budget and who's going to and how many people are going to finish it compared to how many people start it kind of thing is like you've got to balance it. And I found that really interesting, at least with Life is Strange, because I never thought that the ending I picked, which was the bad ending, um, was the bad ending. I was like, they both seem like really bad endings. I'm just going to pick the one I like more. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think that like conversation about choice and reward is always interesting. I, I wonder how that's going to go in the the Disney parks. And I, like, this wasn't really on our schedule to talk about, but I think because what they announced at Celebration sounds awful like a real-life Bioware game at the Disney Star Wars land, especially if that hotel idea comes to fruition, where you can choose to be in part of the Resistance or part of the First Order, I believe it is, and, like, park staff will react to you differently. And... That, I was definitely wondering, like, will will they institute a sort of penalty if you choose the First Order? Like, is there a wrong choice? And how would that manifest in, like, a real-world situation? Because I do think that the sort of morality of Star Wars demands a penalty for choosing the dark side. But you don't want people to be unsatisfied. And that's exactly the, the kind of thing you saw in, like, the ending of... Uh, of KOTOR, for example, where yeah. the dark side ending was triumphant, essentially. It was not a good ending, but it was like satisfying and empowering to the player. Um, I wonder how they're going to make almost an equivalent to that in this real-world setting. Yeah, I'm going to be really curious to see how they actually do this when it comes out, because I I have no clue. Like, I would hate to do this myself, because it would be really hard. <laughs> to make it, you mean? 
Yeah, yeah. It would be really hard to like write that stuff and design it because just, oh God, real people in a real space just seems <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, if anyone has the experience to do it, it's Disney, but I can't imagine how you like make that foolproof. Like, how do you make it so that a player can't break your real world game, you know? <laughs> I just, you just have to design with a lot of flexibility, I guess. Yeah. So that's that's really cool that you uh, that you did that talk. Anything else you want to add about that? Um, not really. Except that there are a whole lot of really cool New Zealand games, um, and I will probably be talking about them in the next little while as they come out because there was the awards night as well, and I was like um, looking at them all. I'm like, damn, I need to play all of these games. Cool. We'll hear about them soon. I'm sure. Yes, for sure. So. I um I have a couple books on my list, but I don't have a ton to say about them. <laughs> I um <laughs> I, I finished uh, Shards of Honor, which is the the first in the Vorkosigan series. I don't I didn't talk about this before, did I? This is like sounding really familiar to me, but I might have just talked about it with Nancy. I don't remember. I don't <laughs> think so. It doesn't sound familiar to me. <laughs> it's um Nancy Schwartz from Tashi Station is really into these, and uh, she—I've been talking to her about it. And it's um, generally, you know, an interplanetary war story. And the first book is about two people from opposite sides of the war, and they they meet and fall in love. And it's this very chaste romance, almost like the the guys from uh, um, Barry R, which is a sort of classical like. Uh, like government structure with an emperor and nobles and he's one of the nobles and they have certain ways they have to do everything including the way they like arrange marriages and then she's from uh beta colony which is what we would think of as relatively liberal like that's a vast uh sort of understatement it's not it doesn't conform exactly to what i would call like american liberal but it's the government structure is not really as as uh, rigid and it's sort of like the love story of them. And uh, it was fine. Like, I had been told that the later books in the series are better or have more action to them. And so far, I am enjoying the, the second one in the series, which is about their son. Um, I am enjoying that more. It was surprisingly, like, it switched from very sort of chaste and paced very slowly and pays a lot of attention to the uh emotion of its characters to being like suddenly sort of quite violent and the the pace shift the tonal shift was weird that's something that i'm trying to pay more attention to in writing because i think like a really good tonal shift is really difficult to pull off and i just there were there were parts that were really unexpectedly dark um but that's not necessarily a bad thing by itself. It just, I don't know, this one didn't quite do it for me. But I, I'm going to continue with the series because it's become so highly recommended by people that say, if you like Star Wars, you'll like this. Interesting. Yeah, it's, and like the author, I definitely see, especially going into the next book, um, she pays a lot of attention to the emotion behind characters and she's really good at getting inside people's heads. And uh, I'll talk more about the writing when I finish the next one. Okay, cool. Do you think that's something I would like or not? 
it definitely reads as kind of last generation sci-fi and that's not necessarily a bad thing like there's plenty of it it's a little um it's a little dated in my opinion but that right. doesn't mean that you wouldn't like it it's got some really like interesting ideas about about um sort of responsibility when it comes to children like there are actually the the bait the baitens have these like pods that they can keep infants in and there are basically children who were born out of unfortunate circumstances in the war and the Badens are like you the soldiers who like caused these pregnancies which may or may not have been wanted were are given these pods and like this is child is your responsibility now like this is you have to live with the consequences of your actions and so, like, politically, I think you might find some of it interesting. The writing style is, from what I know, not quite um, the same as a lot of the stuff that you, you praise. But that doesn't mean, <laughs> doesn't mean don't try it. Yeah. It sounds interesting. I might look at it at some point. I still have, like, a big list of books to get through anyways. Yeah, and it's, like I said, um, Nancy and... and a lot of like the Star Wars fans that I know really love it and it's supposed to just get better as it goes on so I have, that's good I have equally tepid feelings about <laughs> <laughs> um, about uh, a natural history of dragons by Marie Brennan which uh, I wanted a book about dragons I wanted something about like kind of realistic like how would dragons work in an actual ecosystem? And this book is set in a kind of faux Victorian England, and the main character is this like uh, upper class woman who is married in a society where women aren't allowed to have many uh, to be to like act um, aside from their husbands very much. So right. it's sort of about. It's not not at all about her liberation. It's more about how she works within this society, but it it keeps very firmly kind of in its in its time period. It certainly doesn't make her like a modern what I would call a modern feminist. Um, but that and that did sort of bug me that I felt the character didn't have a lot of choice. She had she had agency. She made her own choice, but a lot of the the plot points in the book came from her kind of having to either go around or work within the masculine structure. And I was just kind of bored by that. Like that wasn't what I really wanted. I wanted someone who goes out and studies dragons, which is what this purports to be about. It's like the journals <laughs> of a dragonologist, right? Um, right. And the, that too, I kind of found sort of unsatisfying that the dragons themselves weren't particularly creative and the story was more about the, the people and uh so dear listeners if you have any request for a story about dragons that is actually about dragons i i need one <laughs> so that's so disappointing to pick up a book and be like yes dragons and then it actually just be about people yeah yeah <laughs> I, I, i'm laughing because there was a um, like a meme going around that was uh uh, something like movies reviewed by a person whose favorite movie is Jurassic Park, and it's all <laughs> like there are too many people in this in this movie. Where are the dinosaurs? Like there there are no dinosaurs at all. That's how I feel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and 
And I've found a lot of the sort of fantasy books with dragons on their covers have them as like flavor, not really. Like I want the dragon to be the main character. So if anyone has any suggestions, let me know. <laughs> Hopefully you get some. Yes. Um, so and then I, I read Thrawn, which uh, my Den of Geek review has about all the thoughts I have on that. It was all right. <laughs> yeah, That's a fair review. <laughs> what? That's a fair review. It's all right. That's how I feel about a lot of Star Wars books, honestly. This, I mean, I knew I wasn't the target audience for this. I I respect the way Zahn kind of shaped the fandom in the early days, but I, this wasn't my cup of tea. Price, Governor Price was in it, which was kind of nice, but it, it constantly felt like it was just about to get going. Oh, okay, yeah. Yep. So that's that's about it. <laughs> Not a great book <laughs> crop lately, but okay. Yeah, sometimes you got to get through the alright books to get to the good books. I am in the middle of a better one that I'll talk about in a future episode. But I'm oh, kind sweet. of enjoying being in the middle of it because China Mayville makes me feel like I could be a better writer, so that's good. <laughs> that is cool. Um I I've been reading Rogue One. I'm almost I'm at Scarif now, so I'm almost at the end. Um, I'm glad I finally got this damn book. It took me so long to actually get to it. It's really good. I really like Alex Freed's writing. Um, the bit where the Death Star hits Jedha is heartbreaking. Like I didn't expect to actually cry reading this book because I've watched Rogue One like a million times, but I got really emotional in that bit. And um, uh, yeah. I was on the plane too, so I was like, hide the tears from the flight attendants kind of thing, in case they think I'm scared of flying. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, this book is just really good. I still like Twilight Company, is still way better in my opinion, but this book is good. It's a really good, really good novelization of a movie. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in that same place. I mean, I've talked about this book before, but it's, I do like Twilight Company better, but it's definitely a good benchmark for tie-in novels to aim for like if every tie-in novel was this good that would be wonderful you know yeah definitely or every um, uh, every novelization is really what i meant to say <laughs> yeah yeah definitely like compared to the force awakens novelization which was dry as hell and one of the few star wars books i've refused to finish this book is amazing we don't talk about the force awakens novelization <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I also, yeah, no, we'd never bring that up again. Um, I also, <laughs> while, while traveling, managed to finally finish The Sparrow. I literally did not sleep anywhere near as much as I should have while I was in Canada, because the only time I had to read was at night when I was going to bed. And so I stayed up till like 1am for like three nights in a row, just trying to finish this book, because it was so good. It drew me in so much. Oh, it's so good. And like, the, I can't even touch what's so good about the characterization in this book because it's so deep and every character is so distinct that I, it just, it just floors me. And every time, like, I'm reminded that this book is not well known, I just, I can't handle it. Yeah, this should be like a benchmark of sci-fi. Like, this is some good stuff. Like, it's got really alien aliens and like, it's got that thing where you know from the start what's going to happen, but you're still just like reading it through like, what's going to happen? Yes, yes. My favorite, is, you know, horrible things are going to happen. You just don't know how trope. Yeah, it, I love that trope so yes, much. Yeah, I love it too. And it's done in the best way possible in this book with a lot of like, 
thought about religion. I'm like, what more do you need? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting reading this book because Grass was like one of the last novels I read before this, I think. Um, and it's been interesting to read a lot of sci-fi that's very heavily religious. And it's, but like, it's done in a different way. Like this one was, I don't know, it's, it's done very differently, but it's been really interesting for me as a not religious person at all to read these sci-fi books where religion is quite an important part of it. And especially in this one where it's, it's such a core theme, um, is, I've forgotten all the characters' names now. The main character is like, <laughs> relationship to God and his own faith is really interesting, especially when it comes up against aliens and like space stuff. Yeah, it's it's so much about that. I just I can't even start to touch what makes this book so great. It, uh, Emilio also is just the most endearing person. Like he needs to be protected. Oh, I love him so much. I just love everyone so much. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so good. Yeah, I would thoroughly recommend anyone that likes science fiction read this book because it is just like a plus. It is amazing. Yeah. And you make that point about really alien aliens, and it does that thing where you kind of slowly realize what's going on and what you slowly realize what's so alien about the aliens. Whereas, like, yeah. you kind of think you understand them at first, but that's not the whole story at all. Yeah. And, like, at the start, you're like, oh, maybe they're kind of humanish. And then the more they get described and the more their society gets described, you're like, no, these aren't human at all. They're very different. Yeah, yeah, and you kind of don't realize, the characters don't realize that they're anthropomorphizing them, even though, like, they are anthropomorphic, they walk on two legs, but mm. beyond that, the similarity is much vast, more vast than it seems at first. Yeah, I think reading this after Grass as well, it's really interesting to see the different ways they approach aliens, because in Grass from the start, they are just like, you know they're freaky, horrific aliens, and you have no clue what they look like. Like it gets brought given to you in like small doses. Where in this one, you begin thinking that they're quite like like us, and then it gets more horrific as you go on, kind of thing. Yeah, and like the Runa, which are almost an idyllic species, like they're very pastoral and very welcoming to humans. But then you kind of realize why they're like that, and it just becomes so creepy. Yeah, the world building in this book is amazing. Yeah, cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, I think I think I need to read it again, honestly. <laughs> like, it's not often that I finish a book and go, okay, I need to read this again, but I feel like that with this one. Though I did just return it to the library, so I might have to just buy a copy or something. I uh, picked a copy up at a used bookstore recently, and I, I do plan to read it again at some point when, when I get through my pile. Yeah, yeah, it's probably the same with me as I have a few books I need to finish before they have to be returned again. The worst thing about coming back from this trip was because I was gone for a month, all the books I renewed last month were due now, and so I had to return like 10 books that I haven't actually touched yet to the library, and I was like, why did I do this to myself? Oh, no. <laughs> That's such a, I, I don't like that feeling. Yeah, I felt so yeah. bad because I was like, I want, I want to read you all, but I can't, so goodbye. I'll pick you up eventually again. Yeah. All right, so I think that's all that we've got for books, right? Yep. So let's talk a little bit more about Celebration. Um, the One of the most fun parts of Celebration was definitely that uh, player won that video game bar at the end. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there was where, where we discovered the joy of the uh, gravity thing, the gravity lift. Which <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so good. It was, see, that's like part of what I love about Halo is how chaotic it gets. 
And, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. there was actually a convention also, which happened wow. four days before that. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of listed my, my favorite things. Do you want to talk about – I think we're not going to do a comprehensive list of announcements here. There were a lot of announcements. Um, some things that I thought might be announced were not as well. But we're not mm. really going to do a news-style thing here. You can check out Tashi Station and plenty of other resources for that. Um, do you have any particular like personal favorite? that you wanted to talk about? Um, one thing I didn't see on the list, but it was one of my personal favorites, um, was, for one thing, I did some panels, and that was really fun, um, and that was cool. But also, uh, I got to see the Rebels episode, and it was really good. Like, I've been kind of iffy on Rebels over this last season, as anyone who's heard me talk about it probably knows, but this first episode was really, really good. Like, good tension, good story, it was intense, and I was like, yes, okay, the season, I'm into it. I'm really into it. Oh, that's good. I was not able to attend that panel. I was in line for the Delray panel at that time. But um, that's that's really good. It sounds... I, I'm not unhappy about the fact that Rebels will be ending at season four. I think that's fine. But I am left with a kind of sense of, like, I feel like I almost know these characters. So if we can get a really good season four, I'll be happy. Yeah, and I think because it's a shorter season as well, it'll be much more concise and to the point, which is, I like shorter seasons for that reason, so I'm I'm actually really psyched for the season, and the first episode is like, I can't wait for everyone else to watch it so I can talk about it with them, because like, I can't say anything at the moment, and I really want to. Yeah, that was one where I kind of, um, I, it was toward the end, that was Saturday, right, and I was so like, yeah. kind of exhausted from trying to get to, from panel to panel, but I ended up watching the very beginning of the panel at uh, the StarWars.com stage and then went up to get in line for the Delray panel and ended up sitting there. In, and I watched the trailer while I was in the line. So that, oh, yeah. was, that was something. I was actually really lucky with that because um, I set my alarm for like 4 a.m. to go to the line for it. And then I woke up. I'd only gotten like an hour of sleep and I woke up and the world was spinning. And I was like, no, no. I'll, I'll stay I'll stay in bed a little bit longer so I slept see my alarm for seven slept through that alarm woke up at like 10 and I had like a message from someone being like if you can get to the media room now you can get into this panel and I was like I have 15 minutes to get to the convention center I'm gonna do this so I like kept it and somehow I made it in and I was like I don't I don't even understand this but it was great and like I didn't actually think the episode would be showing which is stupid because they do it every single time and I was still super surprised by it like I was like I know this would be happening but I'm still surprised yeah, well, the, so did they show all three episodes? Did they show the finale of season three and one episode, or did they just show the one from season four? Yeah, just the one from season okay. four. Okay. Yeah. I would have liked to see it, but I'll, uh, I look forward to it in the fall. Yeah. Yeah, I can say definitely look forward to it. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it with you as well, because it seems like it's going to be interesting. Yeah. So I, I did get into the main stage for the last Jedi panel, which was nice. Nice. Um, that announcement was, uh, th or rather, that panel I thought might have more announcements than it did, but we got, you know, we got to see some of the stars, we got to see the new poster, which is awesome, and uh, the new teaser, which was definitely a teaser. Like, it, it was not a trailer, <laughs> it was not long, you know, it didn't give us much about the plot, but it gave us Ray doing her Jedi training, and, like, Ray with a cape, like, billowing out behind her, and that's kind of all I need right now. <laughs> um, 
So I was really happy with how central Ray was in that teaser, whereas with a lot of the mm. TFA marketing, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't show her as much. Whereas now it's like, no, she's the hero. She's going to be a Jedi or whatever comes after the Jedi Order. She's going to be that. And she's going to be the hero. And I, I really like that about it. Yeah, I think, oh my god, that trailer was just like, yeah, it's not a trailer. Like, I love that it shows so much stuff and it doesn't show us anything at all because I love not knowing story before I go into a movie. So I was like, <laughs> yes, this is great. But um, I love, like, the little the Jedi symbol in it. And because um, I, I love Jedi stuff, obviously. And just, ah, the first shot where, like, it's kind of on the rocks and you can't tell what it is. And then her hand comes out. And I'm like, that's so good. And I also love the shot, like, everyone loves it, where they're, the ships are on crate and they're, like, dragging up the, the red dirt. Just that shot is so good. Yeah, that was it was very cool. I think I liked the stuff with the with the books. Like, what is that? Is it the Journal of the Wills? Um, and I like the shot where Ray's standing on the side of the cliff and you can see Luke behind her and she's got the lightsaber because it's just <laughs> such, like, that's Jedi training. Like, that's, like, so iconic. yeah. This movie, I I haven't really had much excitement for it because it's like quite far away and I'm still like riding a little bit on the Rogue One stuff. But watching the trailer, I was like, oh my god, I'm going to cry the moment this movie starts. I can just tell because I was just getting emotional watching the trailer. And it was like flashbacks to watching the Force Awakens trailer back when like that came out during Celebration. Uh, like that was amazing as well. Like it's just such a cool experience, like especially being able to see it with friends in person. It was definitely, like, primarily an emotional experience for me. I came out of it going, like, that was so much. And then if I tried to say what I was thinking about, it was just, like, it was just emotion. It wasn't a lot of, like, <laughs> a lot of plot for us to go on. We do know about Rose. We know that there's this new character. Um, we know that Luke says he wants to end the Jedi. But we don't have a lot of plot. But, it, but it, the emotional hooks are there. And that's... Uh, I don't, you know, that could be, that could leave me wanting, but I keep going back to, it's a teaser, not a trailer. Like, yes, I want to know more, but this just was not the time we were going to get it. And we could discuss the, the thing that Luke said about uh, the Jedi, you know, the Jedi must end, but I think that would be a long conversation that might be suited for a, a later <laughs> podcast. I don't know. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I think we could go on about that for a while. Yes. <laughs> ask, ask me about it on Twitter if you want to. <laughs> um yeah so the other thing i was really glad to see that there were not one but two announcements about phasma my actual favorite character from the yes. force awakens <laughs> um no i love ray but i was uh really happy i didn't expect to i thought maybe we'd get a comic or something because she's she's definitely the boba fett of the sequel trilogy like she looks cool but we don't really know who she is uh i was not expecting the novel announcement at all which uh, yeah. I, I didn't love Perfect Weapon. I thought it was a little too pulpy, but I really, I'm curious to see what uh, Delilah Dawson does with Phasma in this novel. And there's the comic series too. I'm really excited. I kept saying it's Celebration. I want a different outfit for Phasma. I want her to like have different costumes so that I can buy action figures of the different <laughs> costumes so that I can yeah. have a reason to have multiple Phasmas. <laughs> like they've got me, but like, <laughs> The consumer side of this, I'm all in right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, like Phasma, I'm not so excited. Like, I'm not into her anywhere near as much as you are, but I'm really excited about the fact that she's getting a book and a comic. Like, that's really cool. Though I did do admit, like, in the Dore panel when um, Dawson was like, yeah, I mean, like, she said something about, like, Patrick Rothfuss's books or something, and I was like, no, don't be inspired by those books. So I'm, like, a little bit worried by that because I really hate his books. But I feel like she definitely has her own style, even if it is a bit pulpy. He did the epic fantasy stuff, right? Yeah, he did Name of the Wind, which is, like, one of my most hated books, which is, like, you know, it's not actually that bad. The second book is really bad. I just really don't like his books. I Judging from The Perfect Weapon, I, I don't necessarily think the style of this one will be the thing that draws me to it. I think it'll probably yeah. be something that is, like, I will be interested to learn the facts, you know? I'll be interested to learn what happened to Phasma to make her the way she was. But I also, that's just not my preferred writing style. So I'm a little skeptical about that, but it's not like, it's not like we didn't know what we were getting when we went in, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like at least we'll be prepared. Yeah. And it could surprise us, which, you know, could happen. Yeah. And I think that style that high, I think I've talked about this on this podcast before that high fantasy style is, you can't deny that it's popular and that a lot of people like it. And so if it's if that's the direction they're going to go, like it might not be my cup of tea, but I can see why they would do it. You know, I'm not going to praise it myself, but I can see why someone would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be over here with China Mayville and the really stylized <laughs> stuff. And I know that's what I like. And I know that's not what's always going to come out on, in a tie-in novel. Yeah. Speaking of tie-in novels, though... I got really excited by the Inferno Squad stuff because, I mean, we knew that book was happening already, but all the information we got about it got me even more excited because I was already super psyched for that book. Um, Like, and also seeing, like, because the Battlefront 2 trailer, trailer, it was a trailer, right? Not a teaser. I don't remember. Came out. I actually still haven't seen it yet because I keep forgetting about it and I'm a terrible person, but I've seen all the screenshots and everything. I know about Aiden, like, the main lady, and, like, learning about her just got me really, really excited because she looks really cool. Yeah, that actually was a pretty big surprise to me when they announced that it that Inferno Squad is the team that's going to be in the game and that the book is a tie-in because it didn't have, you know, it doesn't have the branding on it. It's not Battlefront Inferno Squad, you know, and I, I don't know what the final cover will be, but they, they kept that. And I was half expecting, um, not expecting, but half hoping for another uh, Twilight Company novel to follow the first one because that also is kind of yeah. in that structure like it's in you know battlefront twilight company so it's like maybe there's going to be a sequel to that and it'll keep going along with the battlefront games and that's not quite what we got but we did get another battlefront book and i'm okay with that and i'm uh i think that like i love that it's got a, a female lead um i think that it's going to be interesting yeah i hope it kind of like, I mean, I'm excited for anything that seems like it'll be sci-fi military, and I mean, this seems like it'll kind of fall into that. It's going to be interesting seeing it from the Empire point of view instead of the Rebellion point of view with this. Um, like, I don't know. Yeah, because I'm very into Twilight Company, and I like the good guys doing good things. Um, but I'm also just, I'm really psyched for this book. Like, I may not end up liking it at all, but I'm psyched for it right now. Yeah, no, and it's going to be interesting. I'm sure it's going to launch a lot of conversation about, like, to what degree do you you empathize with these characters? To what degree are you supposed to? And I think that it's very possible to write, especially in Star Wars, a character who is supposed to be a villain, but who kind of gets their comeuppance. So, like, you like them, but you also 
know that as part of the structure of the Star Wars cosmology, they are not going to win. And uh, Christy Golden has written that kind of thing before with uh, Dark Disciple, where the character is kind of morally ambiguous at best. So I wonder how similar this will be. I mean, I love my moral ambiguity a lot. Like, that's, I mean, I have a lot of issues with the Republic Commando series, a lot of issues, but I really liked how they managed to tackle that quite well. Um, so I'm kind of hoping for something sort of similar to, like, Imperial Commando, where you can see why they're on the Imperial side, but you're still just like, no, you could be good, but also you should probably die for what you're doing, sort of thing. I really, I love that stuff, like... <laughs> I love characters that aren't really good, but they're also, like, Im- you can empathize with them because you're like, I can see why you're doing that. Yeah, it all depends on how it's handled and whether I think what you have to do in this situation is show that there are many sides to this. There are many reasons why someone would fight for either side. And also that, like, because she's got a whole squad of characters to work with, so ideally yeah. they're each going to be there for a different reason. And some of them are going to get, like, consequences of that and some of them are not and i just hope that that's dealt with you know it doesn't necessarily have to be super nuanced but i hope that that's discussed you know and on the other hand there's also like just the cool factor you know like dark disciple was kind of cool at points and if i'm gonna see (laughs) the imperials being flashy i guess that's okay too (laughs) yeah yeah for sure yeah, so that was those were the big things like for me at Celebration. The the kind of unexpectedly um, moving panel for me was uh, Doug Chang's Star Wars University panel, which I don't. I mean, I draw here and there, but I'm I'm not like an artist in the sense that I went to this for serious lessons. I kind of went because I think his illustrations are pretty, but it was a really. Um, kind of really personal panel because he he was doing a drawing for the entire you know 50 minutes or so of it and kind of just talking about what he was doing and why he chose to do it a certain way as well as sort of some of his own like uh knowledge about the industry and the way it's changing like how more and more artists are starting their work are are doing 3d pieces whereas he the way he learned was to do a 2D, like, traditional drawing and then maybe transform it into 3D. More and more people are starting at 3D and then painting over it. So kind of seeing how he is adapting to the industry and how, like, the people within Lucasfilm uh, have the, like, distribution of their skills are changing was really interesting. And he was just, he seemed really nice. He signed stuff afterward. I think... I'm not sure, but it almost seemed like it was a surprise. The staff didn't necessarily expect him <laughs> to like ask people to stay afterward, but I got um I got my notebook signed and got to talk to him about um and those those he talked about the perspective lines in his stuff, which if you see his like vehicle work, they always have these really strong perspective lines. And I love them. I think they look really cool, but I could never quite figure them out. Like why did you place them where you did? And he said, like, some of them, he he never does, like, traditional perspective. It's not really the kind of perspective you'd be taught in art school. It's guidelines for himself that he kind of has his own, like, internal strategy for. And he's like, some of them help me, but some of them just kind of look cool. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was so, like, gratified isn't quite the right word, but... 
it was very amusing to learn that his perspective lines were supposed to look cool because they do very much look cool. <laughs> it's always nice to hear when an artist isn't entirely sure what they're doing or they kind of, they, they might be sure what they're doing, but they still kind of make it up a bit. Like it's always a yeah. bit reassuring. It was, and that's the other thing too. I, I did, I did one panel. I'd never spoken at a panel before, but I spoke at the uh, inside Star Wars insider panel and between that and some of these Star Wars University courses, which I'd love to do more of them at the next celebration, because I think they're really a really unique kind of thing that you don't get at every convention. Between like doing my panel and doing those, I feel like I got a really good sense of kind of the direction that this sort of franchise career goes in. And that was really heartening, because you did see like, I'm relatively new to this and kind of working my way up and I'm seeing where the people that are ahead of me are and I'm seeing that they have their own insecurities too and all that was really nice in terms of getting perspective and feeling kind of like I'm a little part of this whole big Star Wars endeavor. Yeah, one of the nicest things about like interacting with people in the industry you're trying to get into or that you're kind of beginning in is discovering that they don't really know what they're doing either. Um, and like learning that everybody is self-conscious and has imposter syndrome because then you're like, okay, I'm not so bad then. I'm not alone. Yeah, it's uh, it's really, it's good to hear sometimes. You know, sometimes you also want to hear that people have gained confidence and you kind of want them. Well, it all goes back to like, like Ray was saying in the trailer, sometimes you meet your heroes and they're not what you expect. <laughs> like sometimes you want them to be exactly what you expect, but sometimes it's nice to hear that, you know, like you said, everybody's got imposter syndrome. And I know, uh, I think Chuck Wendig has talked about that as well. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah I, I definitely have that a bit whenever I go to a game industry event and like when we were, um, when a whole bunch of the talkers were talking about doing talks at Play by Play, um, a whole bunch of them were like, oh, I'm so nervous and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, but you've done like five talks before. Why are you nervous? And like, I guess just it happens. Everyone still stays a little bit scared. Yeah. Well, I hope that I get the chance to do to do more panels and to see, you know, to see how the fear changes. I don't think it'll go away, but maybe it'll change. Yeah. So the only other thing that I really wanted to touch on for Celebration was uh, Forces of Destiny, which is, I think, a really cool program with an incredibly generic name. I kept forgetting the name of it at first, <laughs> um, which is the uh, YouTube series focused on female characters, and it's going to include books for uh, really young kids, right? Like, like really early reader stuff and action figures and this YouTube series. Um, yeah. And I am I think it's really cool to see a female-focused line. It's going to have Leia, it's going to have Ahsoka, it's going to have Jin, like female characters from all different parts of the saga getting their own stories focused on them. Like, I think that's awesome. But on the other hand, it strikes me as a little bit strange that they're choosing this YouTube format and this format that's kind of geared toward middle age not not middle age <laughs> they're catering too much to the middle age uh, demographic <laughs> with all these cartoons no um the middle grade demographic you know like like elementary school um it seems kind of odd that that's the the audience that this is targeting up but on the other hand 
I can see why that's exactly the audience that they'd want this to target because it's the young girls who are just getting into Star Wars or young boys, you know, kids. Kids are an enormous part of the Star Wars audience, if not the majority of the audience. And they're the ones who are going to be finding these because, you know, kids go on YouTube all the time and they're going to find these and it's going to be their kind of entrance into Star Wars. And I think in a way that's a perfect way to, to, to kind of show kids that Star Wars is for, for everyone. So I have very mixed feelings on that. And also I will watch it. You know, I'll <laughs> talk about it. I'm looking forward to it. The style isn't exactly what I would have chosen, but that's okay. I think the stories look cool. Yeah, I I'm kind of with you that I have mixed feelings. Like it's exactly the right place for like kids to learn about these cool female characters and get really into them and like I'll probably introduce my nephew to it because he'll be about the right age for it. But almost like but I don't want adult lady stories to I want like <laughs> I want it for me. Yeah, <laughs> but I guess yeah. I can't have everything be for me. And I mean I guess we are getting like the Phasma novel and stuff like that, which is cool. But it would be cool to see like a female focus like black series or something like that yeah or even kind of kind of a female focus without so much attention being paid to it you know you can have a show like rebels with three main female characters and not say a word about it like i feel like this i don't know can you nobody can do it apparently well yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think the emphasis on can is important (laughs) yeah Theoretically, you can. <laughs> um, but in in you know, but instead of that, we have this thing that's sort of like, oh, this is specifically for girls. Like this is the one for the girls, uh, as opposed to kind of all of it being for the girls. And like, you know, Ray is the main character. I think Star Wars is much more. Um, if you want to see yourself in a female character, it's easier to do that now than it ever was. So. But it's all increments, you know? It's progress in increments, and sometimes I'd like to see the progress jump a little higher, for yeah. further. Yeah, you and me both. It's Yeah, it's a really hard one, because, I mean, it's really cool for young girls to have, like, a specifically nerdy thing targeted at them, because, like, we grew up without that, particularly. It was always like, this is for the boys, and I was like, screw that, it's mine too. Um, but, like, for young girls <laughs> to actually, like, have this thing and be like, this is for you, and you, you're allowed to like Star Wars. But then it's like, yeah, everything else seems like it's distanced from that because it's not targeted directly for them. Um, but, like, yeah, it's a weird balancing thing that, like, it's good, but it's not good, and it's hard to tell where I feel about it. Yeah, I think it falls under uh, the category that a lot of things fall under, which is I don't want to sound like I'm not enthusiastic about it because I am enthusiastic about the fact that there's been, you know, sort of a, a scrap thrown to me, but it still feels a little bit like a scrap and I don't want to I don't want to ignore that yeah yeah definitely it's always hard with those things um yeah yeah and too it might be something to do with the the toy aspect like I know Disney does in terms of marketing and in terms of the way they decide to produce their products they do have these different niches of you know it's boys age whatever or girls age whatever and that's just how they do their like product strategy and this is kind of trying to get in that like you know elementary school girls 
product range that they felt there, presumably they felt there was a gap in. So to a degree, it's also just about the, the product strategy, which is sort of cold and calculating, but not necessarily, uh, not necessarily surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is Disney, so they're gonna they're gonna do the Disney thing, which makes sense. And hopefully, it ends up in just a whole bunch of young female fans getting really into Star Wars because that would be best case scenario. That would be really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like this is definitely something that I would have wanted when I was younger, even when I was a teenager. This I, this shows how many female characters there are, and it. I mean, yeah, it would be great if there was a more. Um, serialized show with multiple women in it but this gives us a chance to see lots of different types of female characters so if a kid wants to identify with them they can say you know like oh i'm i identify more with Jin, or i identify more with ahsoka like it, kids can choose and just having that choice is relatively new in star wars so that's kind of nice yeah i remember um i did a panel at celebration about the the woman in star wars um and i talked a bit about how like when i was a kid <laughs> when we would play games like we played star wars or lord of the rings you pretend you're in the games or in the in the movies and we would always have to make characters who were like legolas's sister or aragorn's cousin or something because there were no characters for us to be that were like you know the warriors going through the story um and now kids can like they can be Jin. they don't have to be obi-wan's like distant relative or something like they can be whoever they want to be because there's actually girls in star wars and this show will kind of help them identify with that hopefully yeah man and that's so true like i mean i was getting into star wars when i was a teenager so it was a little different i never really had that like kind of that story of like you know i always had to be leia when the kids were playing because i just i wasn't into it at that age but I, and this is like kind of something that I'm hesitant to admit now, but it took me a really long time to like any of the female characters in Star Wars because I didn't identify with them because there weren't enough of them. Because like, yeah, it was kind of like, oh, well, if you have to identify with this person or, or rather if you're expected to identify with this person because you're expected to have these certain traits. And if I'm like, oh, well, I don't have those traits or I have different traits that I might see in the male characters, of course, I'm going to gravitate toward them or make up my own characters. You know, I'd make up original characters or like you said, like on this person's cousin or whatever. And I think this not, you know, not that it's bad thing to make up Obi-Wan's sister. Like, please, please do that. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but when you're, you know, on your own, like when you're playing around, that's, that's great. But now kids have more of a choice and I think that's good too. And yeah. that's going to allow them to kind of engage with the fandom in a different, potentially more fulfilling way. And like creating original characters is also so fulfilling. I'm trying not to like exclude <laughs> anything by praising something, which can be tricky sometimes. Yeah. But I mean, at least you don't have to be forced to do it if that's not what you want. Yeah, yeah, and I have a lot of yeah. feelings about, like, creative engagement with this stuff, which anyone knows who talks to me, so <laughs> that's not a surprise, but my point is, this is good, and I definitely found myself uh, looking like, okay, which one am I most excited, like, I really like Jin, like, I'm interested in seeing what Jin's story is going to be about, especially her, but, like, you might be excited for someone else, like, I, it's certainly going to give us something to talk about. Yeah, I am very excited for this because I like kids' things. I watch a lot of cartoons, so yeah. I'm like, I'm partly like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna dig this. No, I mean that's true. I say this all about demographics, and I watch <laughs> cartoons all the time. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, actually, I have one final thought about Rebels that I just thought of. Go but for it. um, <laughs> it's a really bitter thought. But they had like that art panel or that concept art panel where Dave Filoni was talking about stuff and showing stuff, and I wasn't there. Um, but they showed like a concept art of Rex <laughs> looking like that dude on Endor, and I swear to God, if they make him that dude, I am going to quit Star Wars. <laughs> Okay, Saf out. This is this is the straw that breaks the this camel's is, back. This is the thing I will hold like bitterly until my deathbed, and I will die being like Rex isn't white because that guy on Endor is white, and I swear to God, I oh. hope Rex dies in this season because if he does not, they're gonna do that to him. Mm, I mean, that's Dave Filoni's pet theory, right? Yeah, and he can screw off, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> but no, I like I. You know I'm super against characters dying and things, but I genuinely hope Rex dies in this last season because if he doesn't, I'm really scared they're going to make him white, which is a much worse fate, in my opinion. Yeah, that guy was not uh, Tamora Morrison. No, no. I'm like, yeah. I'm so like, I, like, it's cool to link everything together, but like, at least be considerate of characters' races and ethnicities. It's like everyone who's like, maybe Rey is Sabine and Ezra's daughter. I'm like, do you understand how genetics work at all? <laughs> like, she is white <laughs> as hell. There's no way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah that, what, that makes sense. Yeah, so to any listeners who were excited about that theory, don't be. I'm sorry to crush your dreams, but don't be. <laughs> We'll see, we'll see, uh, you know, you know, my pet theory, or my feelings about Dave Filoni's pet theories, is I wonder if they're gonna bring Ahsoka back, and of course that's... My theory is that she is the wolf. I think she's that big-ass wolf. <laughs> so, I had not thought of that in the slightest. <laughs> so, when I first saw a post about that, I was like, Ahsoka is the wolf? <laughs> like, I felt like maybe Ahsoka sent the wolf, or like, was friends with the wolf but i was like wait ahsoka is the wolf it just blew my mind a little bit yeah i don't i don't know how i feel about that because (laughs) i still think the mortis stuff was like a step too far it went outside of interesting science fantasy and into like pure fantasy yeah it would be it would be a really weird choice but also i would not be surprised if that's what happened that would be so so indulgent for Dave Filoni. Like, yep. How he? How long has he been waiting to put a wolf in something <laughs> and to have Ahsoka be alive at the same time? It's like, okay, Dave Filoni, congratulations <laughs> on getting your fan fiction onto the screen, but that's what just happened here. <laughs> that's quite like if that's actually what happens. That's quite literally his fan fiction. Yeah. But then it's not because it's actual Star Wars canon. It's gonna be weird. It's. Like, I could be totally wrong, but Ahsoka's always been linked, like, in his art and stuff with the wolves, and in, like, those little top trading cards, there's wolves in that as well. I'm like, well, if they're finally gonna have a giant wolf, and he's wearing that stupid Ahsoka Lives shirt, like, <laughs> come on, they gotta Ahsoka be linked somehow. <laughs> I hate that how we made it a question mark, and then he swapped to wearing a shirt that says Ahsoka Lives with an exclamation mark, and then changed it back for the press conference and pretended nothing happened. Like, this guy is such a troll. He uh, he definitely knows how to keep the attention on him. Yeah, he does. He does. Yep. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> we will certainly <laughs> yeah. have feelings about that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. I'm just worried. <laughs> Not worried. Well, I mean, everyone knows my feelings about stories where everyone dies, which is that generally I enjoy them. So we'll see how yeah. Rebels ends. <laughs> I mean, I like stories where everyone dies if I know they're going to die before the story happens. Yeah, that's if an important I'm distinction. Getting, 
into a TV show and I'm attached to the characters and then they start dying, I'm always like, nah. Unless it's like done for a really good reason. But also it's a kid's show, so I'm like, how many people are they actually going to kill? Yeah, well that's like, I mean, I think we talked about that a little bit before with Rogue One, that like Rogue One misses that critical element of you know they're all going to die at the end. Like you do on yeah. the rewatch. Spoiler warning. But... <laughs> you- <laughs> <laughs> but you don't going in so it doesn't have that same feeling like like the sparrow does or like reach does yeah which i think yeah is definitely what's missing for me if i'd known like if they'd made it quite like clear in some form from the start that they weren't going to make it out of it i would have been way more into the fact that they were going to die because yeah. i love that tragic march towards death in the sake like for the sake of <laughs> good things I love that we're both like connoisseurs of the you know they're all gonna die aesthetic. I I just kind of love that. That's why we're such good friends. <laughs> I feel like we we knew this about each other subconsciously, even before we knew it consciously, even before yeah. we told each other. <laughs> we could just feel it. Yes, yes. You also like a slow march toward death. So that's that's dark. Um, that's so dark. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, so rebels yeah the only thing that makes me think maybe they'll go that way is because that Hera's voiceover was so grim I'm like maybe they're going that direction maybe they'll kill one of them like I can't see I can't see Ezra also being dying because they are like the main two characters kind of and Hera we at least know survives until Rogue One so it's like Zeb or Kanan, but Zeb dying doesn't make any sense because he's not really like emotionally connected to the story enough mm. for him to die and it mean anything. It would just kind of not mean anything. Kanan though could happen. Yeah, I'd probably put my money on Kanan because he's yeah. the first of all, he's the Jedi. He's the biggest like <laughs> potential loose cannon, and he's the mentor figure. So, but I've been yeah, saying they don't have a, a good while. track record. I've been saying Kanan might die since like season two, and it hasn't happened. You have yet. been. You have been, yeah. You're totally right. Like, if he does die, I'm going to be like, yeah, Megan was right. <laughs> More, Megan was being very predictable and going, <laughs> maybe the mentor will die. I don't <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad bit when it's Star Wars because it happens yeah, a lot. Exactly, exactly. But I don't know. It's another case where it's that delicate balance between being kind of indulgent with your story and protecting the story versus making a big decision that's going to irrevocably change the story, but might be more of an emotional hook for the fans. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like, I feel like this final season will be a really good season to judge Rebels on as a whole, to see, like, if they actually were working towards something interesting or if they were just kind of floundering. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the case kind of with anything where you can only really look at look back at it when it's done. Because, yeah. But especially Rebels, because it's set in this time period where we always knew they were going to, same as Clone Wars, we always knew they were going to bump up against the movie. Yeah. I'm curious about, because obviously they're going to do another thing. I'm curious what that's going to be. Yeah, whatever comes after. I, I'm really curious, too, because, I mean, that animation studio, Dave Filoni got that work as head of animation, and, uh, you know, he's got to be doing something more than just Rebels and Forces of Destiny. There's gotta be yeah. something else. Um, yeah. I'm sure they'll announce it when Rebels is closer to ending, because they probably don't want to take away its steam. But I'm just like, what is it? I want to know. Yeah. And I mean, I'm guessing it's going to be, like, for that same age group that Clone Wars was, you know, older teens. 
But yeah. it may be set in the new trilogy. Uh, maybe set like during the Rise of the First Order or something. I still want Jedi Academy stuff, of course. But I think <laughs> that is not so likely. Maybe it'd be more like something about, I don't know. You know, basically transporting, picking up rebels and putting it in the post-Return of the Jedi era. It would be about a crew of smugglers or something. That's my safe bet. Yeah, I just hope the art style is different because I'm really sick of the color palette of the show. Mm. Well, some like- point, I think someone like mentioned how they pay special attention to the color palettes of the planets and stuff to make it seem more like Star Wars, and I was like, no, this is bad, don't say that to me. Oh, well, it's they put that film grain over it, which I think is a good idea executed in a way that didn't necessarily work super well. Yeah, I'm just kind of sad because every plant looks so dreary, and they mentioned um in the panel that it was going to be even more dreary to match the tone of the season. I was like, don't put more shadows on things, please. Everything already has enough shadows. Mm. I, I miss, wonder- like, the pretty planets from the Clone Wars and, like, the really exciting things from the Clone Wars. They just don't have that in Rebels. I wonder if the next show might be a 2D show. And Oh, I hope so. The reason I say that is because 2D is is in right now, like stuff like, uh, you know, Adventure Time or even the new DuckTales reboot or uh, I'm thinking of like Legend of Korra, but even that's several years ago now, so that might not be a great example. What other like- Well, there's a Steven shows? Universe Steven well. Universe, yeah, there we yeah. go. That's, that's, I was trying to think of that one. Um, a lot of these 2D shows are, are doing really well and they are, I imagine it's a little easier. I don't, I don't know, frankly, I don't know, but I imagine it's a little easier to come up with really wild planets and stuff because you don't have to do the 3D rendering. Does that sound right? Um, I'm not actually sure 2D animation. I know at least with 3D animation is you can reuse assets and stuff a lot, which makes that easier. Oh, 2D true. animation depends on the style a lot, but it can be much more expensive, I think, oh, that's true. Um, and take a lot I more apologize. time to make. I might be wildly off on that. I mean, no, I mean, I think it's easier to do more stuff because, like, once you've got it, because you've got the budget for one thing, and also you're not constrained to the assets you have as much, but, um, I don't know, I would love, I would love it if they did a 2D thing because, like, I miss 2D animation as a thing so much, and I'm so excited by the things like Steven Universe and that kind of stuff that is 2D animation, and it's really good because... I don't know, 3D, it has limits, and especially if they have budget constraints, you can really see it in the animation, which always sucks, because, I don't know, I think, yeah, the Clone Wars looks so much better than Rebels is because they had so much more budget, because they had George Lucas just like, here, have my money, take it all, um, whereas Disney is like, no, no, <laughs> constrained budget, you've got to work within this. So, like, they were saying that, like, Callus's little hair flip um, from the <laughs> season finale was, like, super expensive to make, and I was like, yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> Yep. I so so that's my wild bet. My safe bet is that it's a show about smugglers based after Return of the Jedi, not necessarily close to The Force Awakens, but after Return of the Jedi. My wild bet is that it's a 2D series um set closer to The Force Awakens or even after The Force Awakens about Jedi. I don't know. Kind of spun the wheel now and let's let's go with it and say it's about Jedi. <laughs> I hope your wild bit is right, because I would love that. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's about it. We've gone a little bit over time, but not too far. <laughs> yeah. We've uh, managed to talk about death and rebels a lot. <laughs> yeah, more than I expected, honestly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so anything else? No, I can't think of anything. 
All right. So um, the next thing, we'll try to get back on our bi-weekly schedule. I believe I have several work trips in May, but I'm going to try to work this around them. Um, we are going to have a full episode about Andromeda at some point. When we finish it, we just have to finish it. So I'm going to go <laughs> yeah. back to doing that right now. Um yeah, thank you for listening. Um, Saf, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me at my website, notsafwork.com, and on Twitter, at Wanderlustin, which is Wanderlusting without the G. Um, I'm also around on ToshiStation.net and maybe MakingStarWars.net. I think there's .net. I'm not really sure. Making Star Wars, possibly. <laughs> cool. Um, and I'm at BlogFullOfWords on Twitter, and I can be found at... Uh den of geek at starwars.com at star wars insider alert detecting covenant movement